My name is Mike Sayers, for those of you who don't know. I am the uh, Big Fat Greek Pastor. And, um... <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. It's getting harder, I can tell you that much. But uh, being a Big Fat Greek Pastor, I am somewhat of a judgmental cuss, uh, I say that, honestly, I'm not trying to be super spiritual or anything. I, I have this fascination with television preachers, and uh, I will flip through the channels and sometimes watching for television preachers, and the weirder the preacher, the more fascinated I am. <laughs> and usually what I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking for the telltale signs that He's not legit, or she is not legit. And I can find him almost every time. I have the same problem uh, when I go to charismatic Pentecostal churches. Having been in a charismatic church for about eight years, I kind of know the drill, you know. I know the drill. I was a worship leader in a charismatic church. For quite some time, and so I, I'm always looking at the exuberant display of emotion during worship with a skeptical raised eyebrow. Um, I just don't trust it. So I'll sit back in the last row with my arms folded, and I'll be watching people dancing, There'll be singing, there'll be tambourines, there'll be banners, there'll be streamers, uh, and the raising of hands, ecstatic utterance, things like that. And I will try and figure out whether it's legit or not back there in the last row. And then I go to like these high church services, liturgical. So I've been part of that too, was raised in the Orthodox Church, so I know that drill. I know that, you know, half the people there are just doing what they're supposed to do. We would all do the crosses at the right time. The right time was whenever the old ladies did it, so. Because <laughs> you really didn't know when it was going to happen. You did. They just started and you just started doing that. And you would kneel down or stand up or barely sitting down in the Orthodox Church. I learned the sounds of the prayers. I mean, I, I, I knew Greek a little bit, mostly modern Greek, and they would say these prayers and I would be able to say them all. I mean, so I could kind of... T- sound like I knew what I was doing, but I really didn't know what I was saying. That was the Lord's Prayer, by the way. The only reason, I remember the, the, the day that I realized that the, you know, the thing that I had been saying was the Lord's Prayer. I go, oh, there it is in English. I can read it. Paterimon. I can figure that one out. My, our Father. So, I can go to a liturgical, sacramental church, and I can sit in the back, and I can fold my arms, and I can look around, and I can tell you 
that, I don't know, half those people in there are just going through the motions. And then I can go to boomer suburban evangelical churches and their offspring, the next-gen suburban evangelical churches. And in the boomer suburban evangelical churches, you know, I mean, the music is all polished and, you know, there's always the ladies with too much makeup on the platform who are singing and always smiling and not swinging their hips very far from side to side because that would be wrong. And, uh, and then, you know, the, the offspring of the boomer suburban church, the next-gen suburban church, you know, with the smoke pods during worship and the laser light show, because you got to have smoke pots, you're going to have laser lights, otherwise there's no point, right? With the Jumbotron and, you know, the worship team on the Jumbotron, and you've heard me talk about this before and kind of rail against it, and I have a hard time. I'm just sitting there in the congregation trying to figure out whether this is, you know, leader worship or, or a worship leader that I'm watching, and... Um, I question the veracity of that worship. You know, I just do. It looks too much like a concert where we're trying to be cool. The worship leader's got spiky hair with frosted tips. It's all over. I'm out in the foyer. And um, (laughs) as I've said before, if it's a conference, usually with everybody else from SCUM who's got that conference with me, So what I want to say is I'm really good at judging other people's worship to God. I'm really good at it. I won't even go into the whole gospel thing, right? Because I could be just a judgmental for the whole gospel thing. I've had friends who've been pastors who during the wild and crazy gospel praise have been actually propositioned by choir members in their ear as they came over to greet the pastors who were sitting in seats of prominence. So I'm going, you know what? Every Christian church expression of worship is messed up, and I know better. Now, if you're having a problem with this because I'm your pastor, good for you. Because this is not the way... You want your leaders to be judging the expressions of worship of other people in the body of Christ. I don't think, according to at least what Jesus has to say in today's passage, according to what Jesus has to say, I am in trouble. And so let's take a look at Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now we are at the very, very beginning of the Passion Week. Jesus is hanging out in Bethany, a town outside of Jerusalem. He's hanging outside of Jerusalem because he knows if he hangs inside of Jerusalem, they're going to come and get him and kill him. So he's hanging just outside. And he gets invited to a dinner. This is right before Passover. 
the Jewish feast of Passover. We'll be talking more about that as we go on from this point. Verse 1. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. The actual Greek is what she had she did. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. All right. Bum, 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 this is like high drama. We have another Markin for the Gospel of Mark, another Markin sandwich going on here, just so you know, if you are interested in kind of structures of literature. We've got on the top slice, we've got the... Uh, Chief priests and teachers of the law who are plotting to kill Jesus secretly. Now, why would you want to kill somebody secretly? So you wouldn't get caught. That's my guess. You want to plan an arrest. You want to plan a murder. But you would like not to have to suffer the consequences. So you do it in secret. On the bottom, you have... Judas, who leaves the gathering to go and betray Jesus to those guys. And in the middle, you have this story, this beautiful story, about this woman who anoints Jesus with this perfume. Normally, when Mark makes a sandwich, what he's trying to say is, look, I'm bracketing the most important part. It's in the middle. So we're going to spend most of our time looking at the middle today, although we're going to talk about the slices of bread on either side. Now, just so you know, if you're a Bible scholar of any kind, or if you're a Bible reader, you'll know that there are a few stories 
about Jesus being anointed with oil. The most famous, I think, is in Luke chapter 7, where a woman of ill repute, a pavement princess, a uh, lady of the night, comes in and um, anoints Jesus' feet uh, and wipes his feet with her hair and cries and you know, Jesus says your sins are forgiven and everybody gets upset because how can this man forgive sins? And it's in the home of Simon the Pharisee, who's not Simon the leper. Simon was a pretty common name back then. Actually, Jesus had two disciples named Simon. That's how common it was. Plus, this story is nothing like that other story. The other story was about repentance. It was early in Jesus' ministry. And uh, this one is near the end. And not about repentance at all. So I want you to know there's more than one time that this happens to Jesus. And and this is crazy because a woman comes into an all-male gathering. There is a table. How can I put this? A long, low table. And, and, And the gentleman would be reclining at the table, which means they're usually up on one elbow. And, uh, you know, using the free hand and grabbing the food and eating it, laying on the floor. Kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like almost spooning, but not quite. You know, all the way around the table. So that's the way they would eat. One of the liberties that Mel Gibson took in the passion of the Christ. I don't know if you noticed this, but at one point he has Jesus actually making a table and chair. Did you ever notice this? What the? Now he's showing his mom, hey, look, look what I did. We can eat sitting up now. It's like, Jesus, innovator and scientist. Amazing. (laughs) Absolutely no scriptural basis for that, but, you know, just so next time you see it, you can say, what that's like anachronism there, okay? Jesus might have been wearing a wristwatch at the same time. I'm not sure. Anyway, that's how they ate. And so when this lady comes in, I mean, she has got to get to Jesus' head. She has got to kind of, excuse me, excuse me, I'm coming through. And, and so she makes a scene. And it's an all-male deal if she's not invited. Some people think that uh, this is the same story from... Uh, the Gospel of John. It might have been Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. We're not sure. But anyway, so she comes in and she has this alabaster vial of nard. Now, nard doesn't sound that great. Does it kind of sound like nerd? You know, lard. Yeah. But, but trust me, in the ancient world, this was it. This is it. They actually have this correspondence between two great members of the Roman nobility, Horace and Virgil. You know, they're, they're going back and forth. And one of these guys is offering a whole cask of his finest wine for one vial of pure nard. So, must have been worth a lot of money, right? Um, it's mentioned in the Song of Songs uh, in terms of the whole beautiful romantic relationship between uh, a groom and his bride. It's this stuff that legends are made out of. 
It was supposed to be grown at the foothills of the Himalayas. So it comes like from as far away as India, and they would have to dry it out or distill it or put it in oil or whatever they do, and then cart it all the way to the uh, promised land, which is part of the reason that it costs so much money. And its, its worth is, is immense. People love the smell. And this is for Dave Weatherby. Dave, I found this and I thought of you. Nard has intense, warm, fragrant, musky notes, similar to the aroma of hummus. <laughs> it exhibits a wide range of fragrances among the root-type perfumes. So there you go. It must have been wonderful, right? <laughs> so this stuff is really, really expensive. The actual original text says 300 denarii. 300 denarii. If you remember back in Mark chapter 6, the disciples are going, wow, there's like 5,000 men here, not counting women and children. It would take at least 200 denarii to feed all these people. This is like 300 denarii. That's like the amount of money that could have fed 7,500 people, not including women and children. We're talking about a lot of cash. I've done weddings, right? I have two daughters who had weddings, and I know how much it costs to feed people. 150 people. You know, I'm still paying for it, Right? And, and, and this is a massive amount of money. Some people think that if a day's wages was kind of like U.S. minimum wage, then it could be like $15,000 worth of perfume. $15,000. Literally a gift for a king. Literally a gift for a king. And then we look at this side of the sandwich. And Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. A piece of silver was about three and a half denarii. So our best guess is that um, the total value that Jesus was sold for was 100 denarii. About 5,000 for us, 5,000 U.S. dollars. So the chief priest paid Judas about one-third the value of the nard that this woman pours out on Jesus' head. According to the Old Testament, this is the value that the owner of an ox would have to pay the owner of a slave if his ox gored that guy's slave. So literally, Jesus is being sold for the price of a slave. A gift fit for a king, sold for the price of a slave, it kind of fits. King of kings, lord of lords, who came to be a servant, a slave for everybody. Well, anyway, we've got three kinds of people in this story, right? Let's take a look. Three kinds of people. We have people who hate Jesus, we have people who use Jesus, and we have people who worship Jesus. Three kinds of people. First of all, the people who hate Jesus. Chief priests, teachers of the law. Why do they hate Jesus? 
mean, really, come on. He's a good guy. He's nice. He's a nice guy. He feeds the poor. He, he heals people. He has great teachings. Tells us all to love one another. I mean, come on. What problem can you have with this Jesus guy? Well, it's because they must have seen Jesus as a threat to their power. They saw Jesus as a threat to their power. Jesus is a very popular guy. People are following him left and right. They want him to be made the next king of Israel. Hosanna in the highest. Here's my palm branch. Jesus, put me at your right. Put me at your left when you enter into your kingdom. Remember me. And so they were afraid he was going to upset at least the Romans. Caesar didn't like a lot of competition. And the teachers of the law and the chief priests had their place set in seats of power. C.S. Lewis says, the descent to hell is easy. The descent to hell is easy. Those who began by worshiping power soon worship evil. Those who begin by worshiping power soon worship evil. That's from the allegory of love. His one, quote-unquote, non-Christian work that I'm aware of, one of his scholarly works about medieval and Renaissance literature. But he's right. He's right. How many political figures have we seen in the history of the world who started out wanting power, desiring power to do good for the people that they ruled? And by the end of their lives, they are killing Anybody who stands in their way. We see this over and over and over again. And we see it, you know, played it out honestly in Washington. It doesn't matter, you know, if you are a member of either party or a wannabe party. You want power. And you want power so you can do good. But once you get in power, guess what? You start getting corrupt. And as they say, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So these chief priests, these are nominally good guys. They're priests. Pharisees are folks who have known the Bible backwards and forwards. And yet somehow, they go astray with the power thing. That's why Jesus said, I am not coming to be served, but I am coming to serve. I'm going to turn the whole power structure up on its head. And they hate Jesus because he's taking away their power to run things their way. And let me tell you something. The reason that I did not want to come to Jesus was because I knew that he was going to take that power of running my own life away from me, and I did not want to have Jesus running my life. It's very simple. He was a very dangerous character for a young man who wants to sleep with as many women as he can, drink as much alcohol as he can, do as many things to get him ahead as he can. 
Jesus was a threat to my power to run my own life. And I think he still is. Not just to me, but I think to everybody who's listening to me. Because you know, Jesus wants all of you. Every decision to be under his lordship. He knows who he is. He accepted this lady's worship. And you know, there's people who hate Jesus because they know that Jesus wants to be Lord over their lives. And they're going, no, you're not. So I will conveniently kill you, Jesus. I'll either pretend like you don't exist. I will close my ears with my fingers. I will close my eyes and go, blah, 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 blah. I will not listen to you or any of your stupid followers because I want to run my own life. And I'll tell you what, I get myself in trouble when I do that. La, 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 Jesus, I don't want to hear you because you're trying to take over my life again. You're going to make me be a servant to my wife and my family instead of being the one in power in my marriage and in my family. I don't want to listen to Jesus when he says, yeah, I want you to serve your crappy boss who hates you and who is unfair to you. I want you to treat him with respect for my namesake. And you're going, I don't want to do that. Or the customer who treats you poorly. I don't want to return blessing for curse. I'm going to spit in that dude's food back in the back and then serve it to him. That's what I'm going to do. You see what I'm saying? We're all like the chief priests and the teachers of the law. When we want to control our own lives, we want to have power in our own lives and not follow Jesus because he's a threat. Number two, there is a man in this story who is using Jesus. That would be Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. Now, Judas is one of Jesus' most trusted followers. He's one of the 12 disciples, the apostles, the one he sent out to do all these marvelous things. I mean, at this point, Judas has done miracles. Judas has witnessed miracles. Judas has heard everything that Jesus had to say to his closest core group of friends. And they're going, why would Judas do this? Well, the Apostle John, in his gospel account, gives us some clues in that he says Judas was a thief and used to help himself from the treasury. So it's no accident that in this passage, just after we hear that people are rising up indignantly snorting in the original Greek, saying, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. This poor lady. This poor lady. Jesus' closest friends, the ones who you think should be most like Jesus, are giving her a hard time along with everybody else at this dinner. This poor girl, who, by the way, is the only one in the story who has a clue, is getting harshly rebuked by these people and Oh, you know, it looks religious, but underneath it all, because 
Mark makes this very, very tight. Verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. It's like the word then is actually the word and in Greek. It's kai, K-A-I, which is a conjunction. You know, It's like, I'm going to take these two things, I'm going to put them together, I want you to know I'll put them together. And so they translated then, so you know that it's an outflowing of what happened before in the NIV translation. So Judas is probably the one who's making the biggest fuss about how this money should have been spent. And why? Because he keeps the money, according to John. Judas, it seems, was following Jesus to get what he wanted. And then he betrayed Jesus to get what he wanted. And I'm just thinking, do I ever follow Jesus to get what I want? Do we ever follow Jesus to get what we want? And some people just want friends. Care less about that religious stuff, about Jesus. They can... You know, pray all they want to him. But, you know, I just really like these people that are Christians. They're just so nice. Christians are so nice. You know, they, they treat you well with respect most of the time. If you're in trouble, they help you out. I like hanging with Christians. I'm not really crazy about Jesus. He was cool, but I mean, um, more about the community here. It's a cool community. I want to be one of those anarchist punk types. I'm going to go to scum of the earth. Sorry, that was a joke. I want to be counterculture. I, I want to... I, I, mean, I don't know why some people go to church and some people keep going to church. I don't know. But I think some of us are getting something for it. Some people are just looking for a spouse. I want a Christian spouse. I want somebody who's nice. I want somebody who's going to tell the truth most of the time. I want somebody who, you know, like when i got a problem with him, I can go to the senior pastor and then I can call my husband on the carpet because he's a Christian guy and he's under authority and that's kind of cool. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But I think in some ways we all use Jesus to feel better about something. I don't think Judas' betrayal is that far off from what I could do. Honestly, I don't. I mean, so Judas had a problem with greed and theft, all right? Some people here have problems with greed and theft. That's your besetting sin. That's the one that you have to struggle with, right? Other people have different kinds of sins they're struggling with, whether it's lust or pride or pleasure of some kind that you have to have all the time. You know, I'm, I, what I'm trying to say is, is that we all have something like Judas had. And then it says Satan entered into him. There's a little doorway, a little opening from the sin in his life, and then Satan kind of rushed in. Next thing you know, he's betraying Jesus. That's the only clues the Bible gives as to why Judas betrayed Jesus. You can have all the theories you want to have, but the Scripture is pretty clear. Because he was a thief and because Satan entered into him. And I'm thinking, I've got my sins. 
And Satan could deceive me like he has so many times in the past. And then the last kind of person is the middle of the sandwich, the kind of people who worship Jesus. There's people who hate Jesus, there's people who use Jesus, and the last kind of person is the one who worships Jesus. And just so you know, it's a woman in this case. She's the only one who gets it. Very often in the scriptures, women are the only ones who get it. We're told that the Resurrection, Jesus appeared to the women first, probably because he knew they would get it. <laughs> but, but this woman, who's not even named in the Gospel of Mark, and that's not odd for Mark, he doesn't name a lot of people, but she breaks social convention and norm to come and to do something for Jesus that she thinks is appropriate, that is an expression of her Devotion to him. And she doesn't just pour some perfume on Jesus. I mean, she goes over the edge, people. She could have just taken a little stopper out of that vial and poured a little bit on Jesus and then kept the rest for herself. But no! independent money earners back in those days. It might have been uh, an heirloom passed down from the family. And she just pours it all out on Jesus. Why? Why does she do it so extravagantly? I think it's because she sees in Jesus somebody who's worth more than everything that she has. Maybe she understood what Jesus was saying about being a sacrifice and that he was going to die soon. We don't know. She might have just been doing out of love and devotion. Maybe she understood what she was doing and saying, this is the last time I have with Jesus. Maybe it was just feminine intuition. I'm not going to have much longer, and i got to do something to show how much I care. Because sometimes, if you know the end is near, you have to say it out loud. It's why we rush to the bedsides of our loved ones who are dying. If I've held it back, I'm saying it now. And here is Jesus. This, this indeed was Mary, the sister of both Lazarus and Martha. Then she has seen Jesus do amazing things, bring back her brother from the dead. And she knows that she has been loved so well by Jesus that the only possible response is to give everything that she is back to him. Under normal circumstances, even Jesus would have said that it would have good it would have been good to give this money to the poor, because Jesus was all about taking care of the poor, right? But this was no normal circumstance, and he was no normal man. And so she gave him everything that she had, and he accepted it as worship. Because you know what? He knows that he's worthy of it all.
Jesus knows he's worthy of everything that you have. Make no mistake. He's pretty secure in who he is. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only begotten Son of God, who will rule for eternity, part of the Trinity. He understands who he is, and he accepts worship like this because he knows he's worthy. He is the one who will be pouring out the most expensive liquid, the most precious liquid in the few days ahead because he will be taken, he will be beaten, he will be nailed to a cross, he will be stuck with a spear, he will bleed, and he will die. There is no way you can compare the cost of that vial of nard, as expensive as it was, with the blood of God's one only pure son who had never committed a sin in his entire existence. Thought, word, and deed did nothing but good. How else are we to respond to one who has done so much for us? How else? Now, look, I told you I've got a problem with extravagant worship. Because I am a jerk. But I'll tell you this much. I have given my life to Jesus Christ. I have followed him the best I possibly could ever since I finally realized what he has done for me. I have not given up my life to the point of death. But I have given up a very lucrative career on a couple different occasions because I felt called to follow Jesus in the path that he had for me, which is caring for his people. Now, I may not be able to dance and sing in a worship service because I'm just too self-conscious. I may not be able to handle high and holy liturgical worship because I'm too much of a dork. But I have given everything I have and everything that I know to follow Jesus. And that is a sacrifice he is willing to accept. I hope it's a sacrifice that you are willing to make. I don't think we should sit back like I do and judge other people's expressions of worship. But rather, I think we should enjoy them. And so, I am doing my level best to allow folks to worship Jesus any way they choose. I mean, I will send you to some good liturgical churches if scum of the earth is not the place you need to be in order to worship God to the fullest. I've done that already. I will do it again. I will send you in the direction of some charismatic Pentecostal places of worship, communities where the gifts are in full swing, if that's what you want, if that's where you feel God is leading you. I have done it before, 
and I will do it again. And if you like the laser light show and the smoke pods, you know, I know some wonderful Christian brothers and sisters who have jumbotrons and do that very well. And, um, you know, you're going to feel like you were in the middle of a U2 concert or something. I don't know. And I'll be happy to send you where they will not only have all those bells and whistles, but they will care for your soul. Because you know what? I'm learning my lesson not to judge the expression of worship of somebody else. And what about us? I think if there's any significance in this passage, I think it's to be more like the woman and less like the guys in this passage. I don't know what your expression of worship is, but I can clue you in on a truth that one can never be aware of one's own significance or role in God's kingdom. This woman had no idea the significance of what she was doing. She was powerless in that culture. She did what she had. She took some perfume and she poured it on Jesus. That's all she could do. It's what she did. And Jesus says, you know what? Wherever the gospel is preached, wherever my story is told, this story will be told as well as a memorial to her. He lifts her up. And what I'm saying is, look, I don't know what your expression of worship is, but it's really, really valuable to Jesus. And I don't know what's going to happen in heaven, but I think one of the things that's going to happen in heaven, that's my, this is my clue, this is my inkling, is that we're going to be able to hear the stories we never heard on earth. We hear about the people who have made these dramatic changes, Right? There's so many unsung stories that will be sung by the angels themselves, I believe, in the life to come. We can never be aware of our own significance or role in God's kingdom. And it's a mistake for us to think that our sacrificial devotion is wasteful or even insignificant. Never underestimate what you have to give to Jesus because he values it. And don't ever call somebody else's devotion wasteful. Who knows how God might use it? Who knows how God might use it? I'm sure that there are people who will say to those in leadership here at His Love Fellowship, scum of the earth is meeting there while they're raising all this money and you're not asking any money from them in return and they're using all your resources here? You're not causing any payment to be made? You know what? What they're doing for us, Jesus finds extremely significant. Same with the people of the Next Level Church. I mean, if you're in the bike shop behind our building and you're helping some little snot-nosed kid from the neighborhood fix his flat tire, you don't know what kind of significance that has in Jesus' kingdom. There might be a memorial to you on the streets of the New Jerusalem. This is for 
Tyson, who helped Julio fix a flat tire February of 2011 in Earth years. Who knows? Who knows? Here is a plaque in the streets of gold that says, this is where Tracy Johnson helped a homeless lady get a hotel room for the night. And not only that, but listened while she told her stories and let her fall asleep with her head in Tracy's lap. The part, you know, when Tracy flipped off the bus driver, that probably won't be there. But, <laughs> but that'll be there. She made me say that. She says, if you're going to tell that story, you've got to tell this story. I go, okay, I can do that. For an offering to be meaningful, it's got to cost us something. Time, money, prestige. I mean, look, we buy birthday presents, right? To go to a birthday party. We save up for the Tool or Bad Religion concert for weeks in advance. We buy engagement rings. We go on honeymoons. We buy iPods for departing scum staff people. Because sometimes it's good to splurge in the name of Jesus. Sometimes it's good to splurge. A theologian named R.T. France says this, There is room in the kingdom of God both for the careful stewardship of resources for the sake of those in need and on occasion for spontaneous and reckless exuberant devotion. There's a time to gather and a time to throw away. Let's be folks who don't look down our noses at either. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for this woman's devotion to you. We applaud her as you have instructed. Help us to be the kind of people who can show you that kind of devotion, Jesus, not forgetting the poor whom you love so deeply, but not being afraid to give everything we have to you on a daily basis. In your name, amen.